Some of you don't know, we have uh, multiple congregations, and Pastor Sam here is the lead pastor in a Minneapolis location. And uh, I just want to pray. Um, the picture I had earlier, Sam, was uh, your parents just lifting you up as a baby and presenting you before the Lord. And uh, as a father who has done that six times with my own kids, and there's there's always an impartation you're longing for, and we committed our granddaughter two weeks ago, and there's just an impartation that you're longing for the Lord to do. But more than that, it's saying, Lord, this one's yours. And God, you've been faithful to this family that has raised him before you. And he is a man who has, has responded to the call of Jesus Christ to come to him and surrender his life and commit to him. And he's a man who's surrendered to the call in his life to be a pastor, an ambassador for you, a minister of, of the word, a minister of reconciliation. So, Father, as, as Pastor Sam comes here, we put ourselves in a position. It says when we receive the one who is sent, we receive the one who has sent him. And so, Father, uh, we believe in divine impartation and divine appointments. And so on this day, May 22nd, 2001, Lord, we put ourselves in a position to say, Lord, we want everything you got. Use this vessel. That years ago, as his parents stood there before you and said, this one's yours, Lord. We ask that you would, would just minister through him and to us. Lord, you know what's beyond these walls tomorrow. You know where we're headed. Lord, use this ambassador for you, this minister of the gospel. I pray, Father, that he'd have freedom in this church, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, prophetic unction, Lord that he'd have complete freedom and authority here, Lord, to minister your word. There'd be no limitation, Lord. I pray even selfishly for greater freedom than Pastor Jim has in ministers or any of us here to preach. That on this day, Lord, there'd be freedom in this house to give and to receive. Use this vessel to work and impart into our life, Lord, that we'd be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Tom. So as... As some of you might know, um, I grew up in Mexico. I grew up in a pastor's home, a church planting pastor's home. Um, went on to, later, they started a, a Bible school, and they're training ministers up in Latin America with the desire and the heart to reach, reach Muslim countries. And uh, we actually have a, a many graduates of the school that are currently working in other schools in other churches in Mexico who are waiting and desiring and feeling called to go to the nations and feeling like there's a glass ceiling. I might need this whether for allergies or for other stuff. I think it's our duty, our calling, where we're at to be able to equip ministers from other countries to reach other countries. We've been so blessed. I look at my life and I look at where I am, where I came from. So incredibly blessed financially, in a church family, relationally. And yet my friends are, are in Mexico waiting to go to the nations. 
knowing that the whole network of churches that we have down there could send one or two. And there's a whole bunch of them. And they're, they're not stopping. I don't know if you've seen people that say, I'm called to go here, and that because that doesn't work out, they don't do anything. But they're like, okay, that's not, the door's not open yet. I'm going to work where I'm at. So they're starting churches up in the mountains. They're going to unreached people groups within Mexico. So I, I have a heart to reach the nations. And I think it's part of our calling here as a house of prayer for all nations. To do that, when Pastor Jim talked to me about coming to this church, that was one of the reasons why I came. Was to be a house of prayer for all nations, not just in the sense that we are a church that people from all nations can come to and, and worship, but being a church that is a, is a house of prayer for the nations. We're reaching out to the nations in one way or another. We're networking. We're going down to Guyana. We're networking with a ministry team from Mexico to go to Guyana. We're helping in whatever way we can to reach the nations. And I don't know about you, but I get distracted from that with the things I have going on in my so busy life. I get distracted from the importance of that. Trying to meet the felt needs, the things that I feel need to, need, I need to have in my life to, to be normal or to get by, whatever it is. And then I stop sometimes and I think, it's like, man, I remember as a kid in Mexico, as a missionary, it was beans and rice. How many of you guys like beans and rice? I love beans and rice. But we ate beans and rice because that's all there was. And we lived in, this, in, a, in a house that you, you would have come down from the States and gone like, wow, how do you guys live here? And my parents having given up, my, my dad owning a farm, giving that up to go down there. And I look at that. And I look at where I'm at and I go, wow. Do I really need this? Am I, is this really what God had in mind when he talks about blessing us so that we can bless the nations? Is this really what he had in mind? Or am I beginning to ask for God's blessing for me to keep? So I really appreciated what you shared there, Tom, about God giving us the blessing to continue to share, to continue to share. And whenever we stop releasing becomes to stay it begins to stagnate and what would would have brought life and would have brought joy begins to bring the opposite of that so i want to encourage you today get involved in reaching the nations here get involved in reaching the nations there we're going to talk a little bit about that cuz sometimes we think of, we hear that and we think that means somebody else I mean, I'm from another country, and I'm reaching people from my country here. I'm kind of doing that. Or I go to Bethel, Bethel Christian Fellowship. I'm kind of doing that already. 
I give tithe and offering at Bethel, and somebody else at Bethel's doing that already, so I'm kind of doing my part. And I want to talk with you today about a story that actually connects that in with the great commandment. And we're starting a series today. It's a three-week series. Pastor Jim and I had been kind of talking about wanting to bring us, bring us back to um, what some, some people have called the three greats. And um, working in cell phone, in the cell phone business as of late, um, 3G kind of emerged out of there as we talked about it. We're like, well, it's the gospel network. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means as we go through the series. But big synopsis of it is we're talking about us as the church, about the church being a who and not a what. We're talking about the work of the gospel being lived out through each of us and in three different ways that, that Jesus called us to do this. And the first one that you've heard of, you've heard of the great commandment. Next week we're going to talk about the great commission. And the week after that we're going to talk about the great concern and how when we are doing these three things, when we are engaged in these things, not just as a, yes, I believe it, or yes, I give to a church that has that on their mission statement, but in I am doing this, I am living this, that we will see our lives transformed. We will see the lives of those around us transformed. We will impact the nations if we live this way. And I know we can. I know it can be done. Jesus taught his disciples that it was about the who. It, was a, it wasn't about the specific things that the disciples would do, but about how they would live that would cause people to say, these people are Jesus' disciples. That would draw many people to, to Christ because they saw how they lived. I think sometimes we, we can think that it's the next big event that's going to make, this is just, this is going to change the city. I mean, this big event, that's what's going to do it. And as, as a pastor, and having grown up in the church, I can, be, I can start thinking that way. Well, what can we do that's, that meets a need that's really relevant? You know, which is really hard to define, especially when you're relevant to who? But anyways, but those thoughts is like, oh, what's the next event that we could do? What's the thing that we could do? What's the program we could do as a church that's going to reach people, that's going to change lives? And yet, we look at the Bible and we look at what Jesus said, and that's why we want to spend these three weeks on these three different areas, is because it was about how we lived that is going to change our lives, is going to change our city, our families, our friends, and the nations. Some of you have heard that the statistic that says that about 80% of people who come to Christ do so before they're 18, right? And, uh, and we typically say, well, and that's why kids' ministry and youth ministry is so important, because 80% of the people that come to Christ do so before they're 18. So I, 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 used, I actually I, I did a, a fundraising in one of my previous lives and uh, before coming here, and that was part of our, our thing. It was 80%. That's why you need to give money to this ministry that's going to reach youth. And then I, afterwards, I stopped and I thought about it, and I was like, wait a minute. Who did the statistics? Where did they do the statistics? Well, if you pulled a church and you got those statistics, you would find that one of the reasons why 80% of the people that came to Christ before they were 18 was 
because they were kids in the church. They were already there. They had Christian families. It's very probable that they would have been Christians anyway. Not to say that kids' ministry and youth ministry isn't important. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes we look at that and go like, man, only 20% of people over 18 are going to come to Christ, so why try? When, in fact, I think one of the reasons why we see those statistics like that is because we have gone kind of like, why try? They're set in their ways. They're not going to they, they don't need, they don't want Christ. And I believe that that statistic isn't accurate if we engage. If we do these things, we would see that that's not the case. And sometimes we can use that statistic to say, well, why bother trying? And yet the truth is that our, our, our society is searching. I mean, just yesterday, 6 o'clock rolled around, and every single person I was with, none of them would have called themselves Christians, every single person I was with was looking outside. <laughs> Looks like we're still here. I'm just nodding and smiling. Like, yes, well, I didn't expect it to happen either. Um, But there was that question, but maybe it will. I think lingering and haunting because there is this awareness of spiritual things, this awareness of what might be going on and this desire to to know God. So that's what what our series is going to be talking about. Um... In talking about these things, you will be hearing things you have already heard before. This may surprise you. But a lot of what we do in church is more about reminding you of what you already know than telling you something new. And if you think it's about telling you something new, then you will be bored. But instead, if you're coming coming to God going like, God, what do you want to say to me today? Even if it's something you already know, but you need to be reminded of it and go like, okay, you're right. That's, that's true. I haven't been living that way. I knew the truth, but I haven't been really fleshing that truth out in my life. I was, like I said, I grew up in a, in a, in a pastor's home on the mission field, so I'm, woo. Uh, and uh, I was the kid in class. Not only was I one, the one that ran around like crazy, I mean, I couldn't tolerate myself now. If I showed up, in, like, if, if I met me at age six, I would, I would not be able to tolerate me at age six. Um, that was me. And in kids' class, when they managed to harness all of my energy and get me to sit in place, um, I was the kid who knew all the stories. And seriously, there were teachers that made mistakes, and I felt it my duty to correct them. And uh, they didn't appreciate that. I don't know why. I mean, the way I see it, you want to be right, don't you? (laughs) So that was me. And then later on, as I kind of grew up in in kids' church, hearing a lot of the same stories over and over again, and sometimes told different, and sometimes contradicting each other, it got to the place where if somebody started talking about a story I already knew, I'd already figure out what their main point was, where they were going, and I could preach it better than you. 
And I think some of you may be thinking that right now. You heard great commandment, and you're like, I know where he's going with this. I could probably preach it better than him. And I believe you. You probably could. But what I want you to do, and I, just in, in all humility, let's listen and say, God, what do you want to say to me today? And let's not be like six-year-old Sam. If you would, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to look at one of the, one of the times when Jesus gave what was called the great commandment. And this time it was uh, one of the reasons why we're looking at it is because he connected it to one of it to a teaching. And he actually lets the other guy give the right answer. Kind of like if, it kind of reminds me of me, the expert in the law. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, verse 37, or verse 25 through 37. One day, I'm sorry, can we stand to read the word? Luke chapter 10, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bills run higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, and empower us. Fill us, Holy Spirit, to hear what you want us to hear today. So that we can be who you want us to be and do the things you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So now this story, you've got a teacher of the law. The two other places that, that, this, that the great commandment is recorded in Scripture, Jesus is the one who gives the summary of the law. They're coming to test him and to ask him, What's, which is the greatest commandment? And he narrows all the commandments down to two commandments. And in this case, Jesus asked the teacher of the law. 
I think because that Jesus perceived this person is a lot like Sam when he's six years old. Actually, sometimes when I'm my age. Um, so why don't you tell me the answer? And the teacher of the law very rightly gives him the perfect answer. And Jesus says, you're right. Do this and you will live. And an honest teacher of the law must have had a moment of self-reflection and said, I'm not really doing that. I must find a way out. I must be able to rationalize my behavior. So I'll ask the question, well, I don't really know who my neighbor is. So how can I really love my neighbor as myself? So who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell him a story that wonderfully forces him to admit that the one who acted most neighborly was the one who was least like this other person, the one who was despised and rejected. And to say the Samaritan was the good neighbor. So I'd like us to learn a couple things from this story and from the great commandment and look at how, how can we apply this to our lives. First off, I see in this, in Luke 10, that the great commandment, what Jesus, or what the great command meant, that's what we're getting at today. What did the great command mean? Is that what Jesus was talking about was something simple and not complex. Jesus took 613 commandments and boiled them down to two. Very simple, very easy to remember. Commands. Yet, it's impossible not possible to fulfill those. Now, I don't know about you, but the way I always heard this was as if Jesus taught this to a group of Christians and told them, this, is how, this then is how you should live, to a group of Christians. Do these things and you will live. And yet, Jesus was speaking to a teacher of the law, of the Jewish law, to a group of Jews who were under the law, and he boiled the law down to two things, and we look at that, and sometimes some of us think, well, I could do that. But the truth is that Romans and Galatians tell us that if you, even if you boil all of the law down, we still fail to do this. I cannot do as simple as this command is, the great command, I cannot do that on my own. I mean, really, think about it. Last 24 hours. Was there ever a moment where you weren't loving God with all of your mind? How about with all of your heart, where you begin to elevate something in your heart, you had more affection for something than you do for God? With all of your strength, all of your energy. I mean, this is actually a good evaluation question. Look at your life. Where are you spending all of your energy? Is your energy being spent on God? Because if it's not, then I would say you're probably not loving God with all of your strength. And obviously you're going, well, I have to feed my family, right? So where's the line? I mean, is it like 51%? And if I'm love, if I'm got 51% of my energy and my strength is given to God, then that's kind of like a majority. So that, then I'm doing it, right? I'm fulfilling this. And yet, I think what Jesus is trying to say, and one of the reasons why each of the times 
that Jesus gives, gives the great command, no one else says anything, they're done, is because they realize this is impossible. It can't be done. Which further demonstrates our need for a Savior. I think Jesus was trying to set them up to realize this can't be done. Somebody else has to do this for us. So I'm going to look at, we're going to look at the great command vertically and horizontally, what it meant. So vertically, it was about love. All of the previous commands that were about outward things got summarized with love. Love God, love your neighbor. It was about complete surrender, not some sort of conditional affiliation, which sometimes we can do in our lives. See, Jesus, I'll serve you as long as you do this and this and this and this for me, and when that stops happening, I'm not serving you anymore. Or God, I'll love you with all of my emotions, because that's fun and it feels good, and uh, I'll love you with all of my strength, because I'm an energetic personality, but my mind? No. (laughs) You don't want my mind. You don't need my mind. But it's complete surrender of every part of me to God. It's about whole obedience or holy obedience. Loving God with all that we are should change and affect every part of who we are. When we don't, it's idolatry. And Jesus had a lot to say about that. The Old Testament has a lot to say about that. In fact, the biggest, biggest struggle that the, that the Israelites had was with Idolatry. So I want to paint a picture for you of idolatry that didn't come through. Oh, wonderful. That's great. So my picture was an eye, a doll, and a tree. Okay? And you would never forget it. But apparently now it's an X, an X, and an X. Huh. Anyway. Uh, What the great command meant vertically, it was an internal, not an external thing. Now, the part of loving God, which was the very first one, and then Jesus the other time said the second is like it. Loving God, all of those were internal things. It's not like they could be measured or observed on the outside. Most of the other 613 commands, you could check off a list. You'd go like, sacrificed bull today? Check. Did not boil a goat in its mother's milk? Check. Didn't do it. Honored the Sabbath. Check. I didn't leave my house. You could check off all of these externally observable realities, and yet Jesus is saying it's not about what's on the outside. It's about what's on the inside. And that, in turn, will overflow into your horizontal relationships where he talks about loving your neighbor, where that's not coming out of a place of like, well, I have to love you or else I'm only doing half of the great command, and then I've failed. So I must do with all of my strength, I'm going to love you, so that I can fulfill the great command and check that off my list. That's not what it's talking about. It's coming out of, a, of, a, out of an overflow. When we are in that proper place of loving God with everything that we are, loving our neighbor as ourself comes naturally. Kind of happens. Because... When we love God with everything that we are, everything that we are gets changed. So we begin to love our neighbor. 
because His heart and His passions begin to become ours. And we begin to care about what He cares about because we care about Him. So, He says, love your neighbor. All right. Who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus redefines neighbor. He says to this man, He says that the neighbor is the person that's not like you. Because we would say, neighbor is the person next door. Neighbor is my person at work. Neighbor is maybe some of the people that I interact with at work. And he's telling him, the neighbor is that person that's least like you. So this, this neighbor, this Samaritan, had no reason to care for that beat up Jewish man. Had no reason to care. And the two religious leaders of that day walked past. One of them, it says, even went over and looked. Oh, man. I'd hate to be you. Got to go. Worship practice starts in 10 minutes. Don't we do that sometimes when we're driving down the road? Somebody's stuck changing a tire in the rain, and we go like, oh, man. I'd hate to be them. Got to go. Worship practice starts in 10 minutes. Or I'm already late for church. Speaking of being late for church, um, so I leave today. My car is sputtering. I don't know what, what happened with all the rain, but it's... So I'm accelerating, trying to go somewhere. I'm like, I'm not going to make it. So it starts working. I get out to I-94. It's closed. I'm like, oh. Okay. No detour signs. So I'm like, I'm going to make up my way over there. So I'm making my way up and coming down. I finally made it. Um, but Hannah almost was, was preaching today. It was almost Hannah's turn to preach because I wasn't going to make it. So the loving your neighbor redefines neighbor as the person least like you. Even Jesus went on to say, further, kind of pushing, pushing the issue in another place, saying that you need to love your enemies. So basically love everybody, whether you like them or not, whether they're like you or they're not. He says this would... I, I see in here that this goes from being an external compulsion is some externally observable thing. It's also an externally enforced thing. So it becomes an internal thing and it flows out of compassion. It says here the story of the Samaritan saw him and had compassion on him. And then he did what he did. We see that with Jesus. He would see people and would have compassion on them and he would do what he did. It wasn't like, oh man, there's a beat up guy by the, by the side of the road. I have to help him. There's this person with a flat tire changing it in the middle of a blizzard. I have to pull over because that's what good Christians would do. Right? But it's coming out of compassion like, oh man, that's terrible. I want to help. So it's an internal compassion that moves us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's what I see here is that the great command meant works of love, not works of law. And Jesus says to this man, do this and you will have life. Loving loving God and loving Jesus means obeying him. He says in in John chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. The one who does not love me does not keep my words. 
But now what does it mean for us? Jesus gave this teaching. What does this mean for us after the cross? Now that we hear, we read about Paul in Galatians and Romans discussing the difference between the law and grace. What does this mean for us? I think it means that we are changed. We recognize, I can't do that. And as I come to God and recognize, God, I can't even fulfill the simplest command. I can't do that of my own. I need to be made new. I need your power in me to do that, because I can't. He begins to do that, and he works that through us. And we see that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 24. John writes, this is how we know what love is. Every time I see something like that, I think of, what is love? Anyway. Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity, no compassion, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Verse 23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another. Now see that little bit of a shift? The command isn't to do these things, it's to believe in his Son and to love one another. And I think the love one another flows out of the believing in his Son because we're changed. We become, Romans and Galatians tell us this, and we're going to look at that later, and I'm really excited about that series. But... We're changed. We are new people, and suddenly we have love that we didn't have before. Love one another as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands live in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it not by some externally observable reality, but by his spirit that he gave us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among you, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. Now this, for me, this, this passage here really captures what does the great command mean after the cross? It means believe in his son in such a way that you are radically changed and transformed, that you are born of God and you know God, that suddenly love is in you. And if the love's not there, you've got to stop and ask, am I really born of God? Or have I just changed the types of externally observable realities in my life to better align myself or affiliate myself with a group of people or a movement or a belief system? Because if the love isn't there, if the compassion isn't there, I, I would stop and go like, have I experienced this being born of God thing? And if you're wondering... I would encourage you begin to ask God. Don't go like beat yourself up. I'm not a Christian. Sam said it today. 
I'm not a Christian. I'm done for if the rapture would have happened yesterday. I would have been left. Don't do that. But go, God, change my heart. Lord, put your love in my heart. I want to be born of you in that way. I want to experience everything that you have for me. You know one of the places where we really see God's love in us? When we begin to love people who aren't like us, you see that. When we begin to care for people who aren't like us, you see that. But you know where I've really seen that I don't have that love? And where I've come back to God in, in repentance and going, God, what's wrong? Is when you love people who can't do anything in return. Because sometimes, even in our unselfishness, there's a little bit of selfishness there that says, well, you know, if I'm nice to them, they'll be nice to me later. Or even this weird mixture of karma into our Christianity that says, well, if I do a good deed, somebody else will do a good deed to me, which shouldn't be there. But when we love people who can't do anything for us in return, they can't repay the favor. And there's no motivation externally to do that. But when it comes from inside, and that's when we really start knowing, like, man, God's love is in me because I had no reason to love that person or to help that person or to do something for that person. And I, I, worked, in a, I worked in a place for about, um, I don't know, almost three years, different settings, but doing the same, same type of job, and I was helping people who could do nothing for me in return. And when I would get... I would go in like, man, God loves them. I'm praying for them, speaking in tongues over them. Mm. And by the end of the day, I'm frustrated, I'm tired, and I'm like, oh, can't you just do this, please? And I need to realize, you know, I can't, in that sense, I can't fulfill the law of loving my neighbor in the way that God wants me to out of my own strength. By trying harder. But at that point when I realize I'm like, I'm running out of it, to come back and God give me strength to love these people give me strength to love this person give me strength to love this family member maybe I don't know what's going on in your life but how do you do this practically I think vertically in that relationship with God it's, it's being and living in a place of surrender and obedience regularly saying God, I give you my mind, I give you my heart, I give you my time, I give you my money, I give you everything that I am. And living in that place of dependence, that's saying, Holy Spirit, I can't do this on my own. This person's annoying. You know that's the truth, right? God, I need you to give me the strength to love this person the way you love them. Because I can't. And imagine what would happen if we started living that way. And suddenly, we start, I've had people come up to me at work, coworkers, and say, man, I don't know how you deal with those customers. And I'm not really thinking about it. It's not like I'm going, oh, hallelujah. God, get, at that point, it's just kind of, it's flowing out. You know, it's not, not really thinking about it. There are times, though, that I'm really thinking about it, and I'm praying, God, give me grace. 
But when people would start to notice, oh, how many people are there, like 200 people in here with the kids? I don't know, 150 in here. If 150 people left this place and we all go to the different places where, where we're interacting and we're interacting with another 50 people in our lives and we begin to love people in such a way that was not out of a sense of duty but out of God flowing through us, that people go like, man, I don't know how you love that person. I don't, why do you care so much about what happens to them? Why do you spend so much time with them? Why do you talk to them? Nobody else talks to them. Why do you let them sit at your table? Have you seen how, the, how, how their emails are so rude? Why do you even bother responding to them? Just ignore them like all the rest of us do. When you begin to love people, what would happen? We talk about the gospel network and we painted the picture there of a net because when we're doing these different things, the church, without doing a specific program, will function like a net and people will come to Christ. It will happen because people are going to say, what's, what's going on in your heart? What's going on in your life that, this is, that you love these people? I mean, that's not natural. And you say, right, it's supernatural. No, okay, maybe not that line. But something's going to happen. It's going to make people wonder. So that's vertically, surrendering to him, relying on him, depending on him horizontally. It's loving your neighbor. It's doing works of love, not works of the law. So this week, I want to invite you to live out what the command, what the great command meant. By surrendering your life to God, by asking God to help you see people the way he sees them, helping you love them the way he loves them. And I would encourage you to do this. So there's two things, live and surrender, right? Live in that dependent surrender. And then asking to see people the way he sees them. And finally, each day for one week, right? Try this, each day for one week. Look for one need around you where your heart is moved with compassion, and if your heart's not moved with compassion regularly, that's the whole thing about praying again. Go back to God. But where your heart is moved with compassion, and maybe normally you would say, I don't have the time for that. I don't have any change in my wallet. I don't have whatever. And one thing a day for seven days, and just do it. And see what happens. Maybe it's talking to somebody that you never have talked to before and nobody else talks to. Maybe it's engaging people. Maybe it's um, one thing I did last night, kind of like as a, not really thinking about it, but this whole thing, the, the message has kind of been percolating for a while. And uh, I'd had a really good day at work. I only worked, um, I, I worked a short shift last night, and God blessed me with people that just walked in and came right up to me and started asking for, for, um, for service. So I've had a good day so far, and then like, it was just insane. The first two hours, I was like, nonstop. So I'm having a good day, and I look over at the, at the list, and I see that one of my coworkers hasn't done anything yet. So I start engage. I just happen to engage with another person. And he's like, yeah, I want to do this and this and this, and I want to add this and this. Really good things for my business. I'm going like, ooh. I'm going to break records for my day today. And as I'm walking over, I'm like, hey, did you say hi to this guy when he walked in? And she's like, yeah, but she hadn't done anything with him. 
I'm like, well, you can sell it to him. And I gave away like 50 bucks in service without really thinking about it because I'm going, I've had a good day in that sense. I don't need more. And just gave it away. She kind of looked at me weird. Okay. She didn't argue, though. <laughs> I wouldn't argue. I'm like People have been nice to me. People have blessed me. I'm going to bless somebody else. It could be something simple like that. I don't know what kind of business you're into. But where you would normally jump on something, turning and going like, who else want, would, would like this? Who else would, would get energized by the fact that they get to do this instead of me? Well, why don't you do this? Look for one thing each day where God moves, kind of stirs your heart with compassion or drops something in your spirit that says, ah, maybe you're not the one that's supposed to do that. Maybe somebody else is supposed to. And just do it and see what happens. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I, I thank you for how you are here to empower us to live in this life of love. God, that we're not capable of this on our own and we need you and we declare that this morning. And we ask, God, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit this week to hear what you want us to hear, to even say the things you want us to say, to do the things you want us to do, and to be the people you've called us to be. God, that as we go from this place, we would radiate life and joy to this city, to our neighbors, to our friends. God, that we would live out what the great command meant in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to do something a little different. I know it's going to throw everyone off. Usually we have you stay here for a few songs and release you. I'm going to release you now. You want to stay, stay. If you don't, you don't. But I want to exhort you in this. Um, Kathy's dad died about four years ago, and he was a good friend. One of the few men that I can say I ever loved in my life. And um, one of the things I really learned from this guy, he was on my ministry board and uh, just been a good friend, is he's, he had this saying, he would attach value on every person he saw. He would attach value. And I've watched Kathy take that, that, uh, that statement, that, that philosophy, in where she goes and where she works. And I watched how she attaches value. That's what I heard in this message. We need to attach higher value on the Lord that we serve and understanding who he is and his power and his authority. So we understand who he is. We recognize, why are we so concerned about all the things we get concerned about? And then when we start attaching value on one another, it makes a big difference. It makes a difference how we react. It makes a difference in how we live. It makes a difference in how we love. But I'll tell you this, you can't do it on your own. You can't. Um, I've, I've dealt with so many people that New Year's Day, they make this resolution by, by New Year's evening, by January 2nd, by January 3rd, it's gone. You cannot do this on your own. You have to look to him. Jude says it this way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless before the very presence of his glory with exceeding joy. We've got to look to him. So Father, as we leave this place today, I am asking that you would continue to mold and to work into us that which is on your heart, that we'd love you with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, and all our soul.
and to love everyone that you put in our path. That we would be ambassadors. You have given us the ministry of reconciliation. You have given us the word of reconciliation. Lord, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 20, 21. You've given us, Lord. So we look to you. We look to you. To our only God and Savior, who alone is wise. Be all glory and all majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen.